So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the New Testament letter of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be there in just a moment. This classic text, the first 11 verses. I don't know why I didn't plan a full month for these 11 verses, uh, because this text is, is far too awesome to be captured in one sermon. Matter of fact, a New Testament scholar by the name of Gordon Fee described this as one of Paul's finest hours and this being one of the most treasured texts in 2,000 years of church history, one of the most oft-quoted texts in 2,000 years of church history, and so we get to look at this passage. The main theme that we're going to see in this passage is humility. Humility is a, it's a tricky topic to preach on. Um, you know, if I do a good job, I'm not sure I'm allowed to know it, or if you're allowed to... <laughs> to tell me, <laughs> it reminded me of something um, I read some time back by a, a quote by a famous French mathematician who wrote in the 1600s, his name was Blaise Pascal, he said this, vanity is so anchored in the heart of man that those who write against it want to have the glory of having written well, right? And, and I felt some of that temptation even in preparation for this message, you know, I didn't put it into these words, but the sense of temptation and pressure was, this has to be, this is Philippians 2, this has to be the mother of all sermons on humility, which is sadly ironic, right? This has to be amazing sermon on being humble. <laughs> so, so clearly, I need what's in this passage, and we need what's in this passage. If we're going to be, in the name of the series is Mission Together, if we're going to be on mission together for the glory of Jesus, if we're going to flourish for God's glory as a church, then we need the words that are here from the Apostle Paul to us. So if you would follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So you can feel he's building towards something. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's no wiggle room there. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then this is one of the first hymns written in the early church about Christ, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our whole purpose as a church 
hinges on this. If, if we don't get this, if we instead, if we drift more and more toward pride, more and more toward disunity or selfish ambition, our worship and nurture and mission will all be devastated in impact. Our worship will become pharisaical, our nurture will be non-existent, and our mission will become neutralized. You, you know, Jesus has, he has bad news and good news around this theme. Jesus said this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's bad news, and there's good news. And James kind of echoes the same thing. New Testament apostle James, he says this. He's drawing from the Old Testament, and he says, God resists or opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what does that mean for us? It means, Brooke Hills, if we're humble... God will do great things in us and through us for his glory. And the bad news is is if we're proud, he'll walk. There's even that kind of language in the New Testament when letters are written to the New Testament churches in the book of Revelation. And he says, if I'm walking among you and I will remove my lampstand, God opposes, he resists at every step proud people, proud churches. You know, even, even think about the book of Galatians. Why is Paul so lathered up about what's happening in the church at Galatia? He says, you've fallen from grace. Well, how do you fall from grace, according to the apostle in the book of Galatians? How do you fall from grace? You say, hey, thanks God for the kickstart. We can take it from here. We've got it from here. We don't need your power to push us forward all the way to the end. We've got it from here. You started us off and we're good to go. And here's the scary thing about pride in the church is we could continue to see outward success and outward signs of success in ministry, but but listen, that can't be our objective. Church, I hope we can gather, I hope we can be together around this, this truth and this statement that we can live without success in the eyes of the world. We can't live without grace. And grace flows to the humble. And this, path, this passage tells us the path toward humility. And so we need this passage. Tell us the way to humility because in the place of humility there is grace and there's nothing we need more than grace from God. And so that unfolds, this path to humility unfolds I think in three movements. Number one, gospel motivation. Gospel motivation. So Paul is right here in verse 1, he's continuing to talk about what he's already been talking about at the end of chapter 1. So verse 1 of chapter 2, the English Standard Version translates it this way. So if there is any encouragement, the New American Standard translates it this way. Therefore, if there is any encouragement. So that word therefore, it's in the original, it's translated in a number of different ways, but that word therefore is looking back. It wants to get us to look at what happened, what was Paul just talking about at the end of chapter one. And what was he talking about? He was talking about unity in the gospel, togetherness in the gospel. Look at verse 27 in chapter 
one, and, and you see what is it that Paul wants to hear is happening among the church at Philippi. He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm, about halfway through t- verse 27. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending, here's that word, together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. And then you ignore the chapter break, and he says the word, therefore, right here at the beginning of chapter 2, and he continues to exhort them toward the same thing, unity and humility. He wants them, essentially, to stay low and stick together. Stay low, stick together, and move forward with the gospel, because if they aren't functionally together for the gospel, if we aren't functionally together for the gospel, not as a concept, but as a reality, our witness will be hindered. And Paul's objective is he wants to see this missional church keep moving forward with the gospel. But notice, notice here, Paul doesn't lead with commands. This is in your notes. Grace comes before commands. Right here in this passage, it doesn't start with commands. It starts with grace. Paul doesn't just jump straight into correction mode, right? This isn't Philippians, he's going to address some issues. He's going to bring some correction and some adjustment. But this is not, you know, sort of apostolic whack-a-mole. You know, the, the book of Philippians doesn't, doesn't just have that feel. You know, chapter 1, I see you fearful, and he's just pounding all the things that are wrong. You know, in chapter 2, you're selfish, and you're complaining about things. And then chapter 3, you're focused on your spiritual performance. And then chapter 4, you're infighting and your anxiety, and all the, your head's not straight, so meditate on good things and not the garbage you've been meditating. Right, it's not, it's not Paul just apostolic whack-a-mole all over the church at Philippi. He doesn't just go into attack mode on their sin and weakness. He, he shepherds the heart. He's not behavior modifying the daylights out of the church. He's motivating them through good news. That's why Paul begins where he does. Look at those words again. If there's any encouragement in Christ... That those words, if, they keep showing up, they really function more like the word since. In other words, Paul isn't saying, you know, I'm not sure there's any encouragement in Christ, but if there is, it's not that. It's more like, since there is, it ought to shape the way that you live toward one another in the church. He knows they've experienced these things. Since there is encouragement in Christ and all the rest. You know, in a way, I think it's interesting. Paul uses... Five words to describe our experience of God when God saves us. Our experience of God in five words. Encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and mercy. Isn't that interesting? What, what, a, what a winsome, beautiful way to describe what happens when God closes in on us. When God captures our souls. That's what we talk about when we talk about this distinctive as a church of we welcome graciously. We're talking about that. How, how telling is that list? This is what you encounter when you encounter God. Is that your list? Is that what you would say to somebody if they said, hey, give me five words to describe what happens when you meet Christ? What do you think most people in Birmingham walking down the streets here and there today, cutting their grass, what do most people in Birmingham, what would they say if you said, give me five words that describe what you think happens when people encounter Jesus? This is instructive for us. In other words, let's, 
let's not give unbelievers the impression that God wants them essentially to be more religious. You know, that's the end game. No, no, he wants to sweep them off their feet. He wants to breathe life into their souls. The biggest lie that Satan tells people in this world is the one he uses to get them to run away from Jesus. Whichever one worked, that's the biggest lie he's got going. It's the one he uses to get people to believe that Jesus isn't everything their soul longs for. Everything. That's Satan's biggest lie. And Paul begins with this gospel motivation. He says, this is what you've experienced at the hands of a gracious God. So there's this gospel motivation. Number two, gospel application. Gospel application. And this actually begins in verse two. From verse two to verse four, that's what happens when the gospel sort of gets into the blood. When the gospel gets into our bloodstream as Christians, as followers of Christ, this is what happens. Paul says in verse two, the command, the imperative comes. Make my joy complete. How do you want us to do that? He tells you exactly. By the way you pursue unity and the way you express humility through serving others. That's, that's his answer. Make my joy complete. How? Pursue unity. Think the same way. Have the same love. Be intent on the same purpose and serve others. Don't cling to your own prerogatives and preferences and rights. That, that for Paul, do that complete joy. For Paul, that is the summit. That's what he hopes for the most when he looks at this, this church. But, but bear in mind, bear in mind, Paul is writing under divine inspiration. So there's, there's an author above the human author, right? We know that. These aren't just Paul's words. In other words, this isn't just stuff that's going to make Paul happy. There's an author above the human author. Author, in other words, this is in your notes, God comes to church looking for two things, unity and humility. In other words, you hear God saying from this passage, hey, Brooke Hills, make my joy complete. My, God's joy is complete when he looks out and sees his people loving one another, unified in one purpose, sharing the gospel together, treasuring the gospel together, growing in the gospel together. He just loves that. It's complete joy for our God, a congregation that's together for the gospel, unified in believing it and proclaiming it and displaying the gospel by humbly serving others and humbly serving one another. When, when it comes to humility, C.S. Lewis has famously pointed out some, something that humility is not, and I think sometimes we can easily go here and think this is what humility is. C.S. Lewis just kind of cuts us off at the pass with this excellent and clear statement. He says this, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. (laughs) He won't be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's nobody. (laughs) Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about himself at all. There I must stop. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. 
At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> how, how trenchant, how true that is. But look, friends, don't, don't leave behind what we saw in verse 1 as we think about gospel application. In other words, those words, if any encouragement, if any consolation and love and fellowship and affection and mercy... Paul is saying, that's what you've experienced from God. And Paul is saying here, bring that stuff to church. That's what you knew when you encountered God. That's what people should know when they encounter you. Bring that stuff with you into the world. Bring it with you into fellowship. Bring it with you into small group. In other words, those five words in verse 1, it should be like a scent that sticks to us. right? You ever have a scent that sticks to you? You know, you go eat barbecue somewhere and you walk around. It's like, no, I still... Jim and Nix, it's still like right here with me. Four, five hours later, I still carry that around, right? For the first few years of elementary school, I came home every day smelling um, like I had smoked a cigar. And that was because I sat directly behind the bus driver who smoked cigars the whole way, the whole way from the school all the way to my house. And so I don't think my mom suspected that I was, you know, smoking with the boys at recess the other six-year-olds at Harold Elementary School. I, I don't think she suspected that because the reality was what happened is the bus driver and I were sitting together in a cloud of smoke at the front of the bus. <laughs> and both of us came out smelling like we had smoked. And I think in a sense that, that's what Paul's saying to the Christians who made up the membership of the church at Philippi. It's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, hey those words in verse 1, Encouragement, consolation, that stuff, it, it, you ought to smell like that. That's what you've been around when you met God. That's, what, that's the smoke you were in, right? I, I should leave the cigar metaphor behind, really, at this point. But he's saying, that, that's what you lived in. That's your existence and experience from God. Why didn't you carry the scent? I can't, I can't smell it on you. I can't smell encouragement and consolation. It's just, it's not there. It's almost like Paul walks into worship at Philippi and the smell that hits him in the face is disunity. This, this is foul. Disunity and pride and selfish ambition, that's what I'm smelling, but that's not what you got when you met Jesus. How, did, how do you smell this way when you were at the front of the bus with Jesus in chapter 2 verse 1 and all this encouragement and consolation and love and affection and mercy, you were enveloped in it, but you don't smell like that. It's almost like he's saying, how can that be? How can that be, Brookhills? Do we smell like that? Or do we smell like verse 1? In the church, this is in your notes, we give away what we've known by grace. That's how it's meant to be. We give away to others what we've known at the hands of God. I, I talked to a friend um, just this week who's in the process of becoming uh, the senior pastor of a church that is far from healthy. This church needs serious revitalization. In the process of his interview, there were things that came up from some of the leaders who were on the search committee, and those leaders, even the questions that they were asking caused my friend to be just discouraged and weighed down. He's like, those just aren't the questions. That's just worldly views of success. That's not the way that God intends to build his church. Those aren't the questions that really matter. It's almost like he wanted to tweak the questions. He wanted to say, look, you should be asking this. 
and I'd be telling you what I'm really excited about. And, and he didn't know that I was preaching on Philippians 2, but he gave me this illustration because the last thing that he said to me on Tuesday night when we were talking together is he said, Matt, would you pray? Pray that I would be as patient with them as God has been with me. And I thought, you smell like Philippians too. It's, it's all over you. In other words, you see that the patience you've experienced from God isn't just your gift to hoard. It's your gift to extend. You pass that on. You don't just live in it and, and hold it to yourself. God doesn't want us to know about his patience toward us without extending it toward others. And in fact, we might say it this way. We haven't grasped fully his patience toward us until we start ex extending it toward others. That's how you know the gospel's becoming bone deep. It's getting in the blood. We know it because we start to see it manifesting in our relational world. I wonder if we gathered. I wonder if we gathered everybody in this city who has any faint acquaintance with the Church of Brook Hills. People who have maybe walked into this room and worshiped with us maybe 10 years ago, 15, maybe last Sunday, or maybe people who have just bumped into you bumped into members of our church. I wonder if we gathered all of them together and we asked them, hey, write down a one-word description of your impression of what we're all about. When you encountered us, write a one-word description of what you encountered. I wonder if we would see the prominence of these five words. Encouragement, consolation of love, fellowship and friendship, affection and mercy. That, I mean, just, those are just some words that come to mind when I think about what I encountered at Brook Hills. In other words, is that what people smell like when they've been around us? When they've worshipped with us or when they bumped into us in different places? Would they say, those people, they, they welcome graciously. There's a warmth, there's a genuineness that makes you want to stay a while. Listen, let me put it the negative way. A harsh, unwelcoming, finger-on-the-trigger-of-rebuke church is the opposite of the story we're living in as believers. That is not the story we've experienced at the hands of a gracious God. So there's gospel motivation, there's gospel application, and finally, there's gospel illustration. Gospel illustration. I wonder if you've ever had this experience of, of you're following someone and you lose track of them and you, you turn around and you don't know where they went. Ever had happen to anybody? So I've, I've been lost in the French Quarter, so I'm from New Orleans. And I remember one time I was walking behind my parents and I even remember what I saw. I saw, <laughs> I saw a, in the window there was a, a model of a, um, of a cheetah. And I was just staring at that cheetah and just got lost. I was probably in the savannah and the Okavanga. And here, I was in my imagination. I was on safari with this cheetah, right? And next thing I know, I look up and my family's gone. And I'm in the center of the French Quarter and just people moving all around me. I lost track of the people I was supposed to be following. It even happened this past Wednesday. So Wednesday, 
In one sense, losing the people that you're walking behind is just another word for Sunday for our family. That just happens every Sunday. But this past Wednesday, so after the Brook Hill Stories Night, which was awesome, by the way, Brook Hill's Stories Night, and we're all kind of, I see my family all milling about and talking to people in different places. My wife is here, I'm, I'm here. And then both of us walked over and had a conversation with someone, and, and then the room started to empty out by the time we were finishing that conversation. And so as we finished that conversation, we kind of both agreed, okay, let's go. Now we'll pick something up on the way home to eat. And so we're walking from here, and then uh, and I'm walking behind my wife, and then I, just for a moment, got into a brief conversation with a friend who was right there. And then I looked up, and my wife was gone. And so I walked, I walked forward, and there was a group of probably seven or eight people right here. And I just literally asked them, have you seen my wife? Right? Cute little brunette, feisty. She can maybe run around. I don't know. But... And then, so they're all looking around with me. I'm like, I'm not necessarily starting a search party here. Just if you guys have saw, saw my wife, just kind of help a brother out, you know. And, and they, did, they didn't know, and I ended up, ended up finding her. But that sort of thing happens all the time, right? And I think Philippians 2 unfolds a similar story. This is in your notes. We follow Jesus, and Paul reminds us which way Jesus went. Paul reminds us which way Jesus went. Which way did he go? Verse 6, he existed in the form of God and he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And then he made another turn. He When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You ask the question, which way did Jesus go? And the answer from this text is down. He went down. He didn't insist on his own rights. He took on the role of servanthood and rejection became his own personal experience. You know how officers read people their Miranda rights. I've always thought that was, had to be one of the coolest parts of the job for police officers, just to read people their rights, right? I, and I grew up, and again, I kind of, my imagination used to go wild in this category. I wanted to grow up and be a police officer. Um, I got to shake the hand of Sheriff Harry Lee because I was considered one of the elite patrol officers at an elementary school. Uh, and so I, I rocked my orange cross belt and, you know, and they, they upped me, you know, I just kept graduating from one badge to another. They're just moving that thing up and up, sergeant, lieutenant, and captain, and all the rest. I got to go to a, um, to a police officer's camp for elite patrol officers in Metairie in elementary school. And I, when I got there, I discovered that there are hundreds, turns out there are hundreds of elite patrol officers, right? So, like, man, this is an, an impressive fraternity of... Uh, all in uh, future police officers. And to my surprise, I'm walking through that and I'm just thinking about, man, this would be so awesome to just be a police officer. And I I used to always imagine reading people's rights to them. You have the right to remain silent. Anything Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided for you, right? And maybe some of you have memorized that as well. Law and order fans all around the room, 
You just pick up on that, right? That seemed like the coolest thing to be able to do that. You know, here's the thing. Jesus had rights. He had rights. Jesus existed with God in triune relationship for all eternity. He was the eternal son of God. Jesus prays in John 17, he says, about the glory that they would see the glory I had with you before the world was created. He knew incredible glory. As the eternal son of God, he had the right to be immune from pain and poverty and humiliation. He had the right to not get spit on. He had the right to not be stripped naked in front of the city and hung next to criminals. He had the right to be revered. He had the right to be served and worshiped by angels. And this passage says he did not consider, in another translation, equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to that right. Why was he willing to give that all up? He, he answers, Paul answers the question in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's he doing? He's putting your interest above his own. He's smelling like Philippians 2. He's laying down his own rights so that he might lift us up and give us salvation. I love this statement from a theologian, Donald McLeod. So clarifying. He says, never once does Jesus in his own interest or in his own defense break beyond the parameters of humanity. He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself a house. He was thirsty, but he provided himself no drink. He was assaulted by all the powers of hell, but he did not call on his legions of angels. Even when he saw the full cost of his self-emptying, he asked for no rewriting of the script. He bore the sin in his human body, endured the sorrow in his human soul, and redeemed the church with his human blood. The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest, and raised the dead was never used to make his own conditions of service easier. Neither was the prestige he enjoyed in heaven exploited to relax the rules of engagement. What's he doing? He's doing exactly what he said he would be doing when he told those who were standing in front of him. And he said, here's why the Son of Man came, so there's no confusion. I did not come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Paul is saying to these believers in Philippi who are arguing, they smell like disunity and they smell like pride and selfish ambition. And he's saying, have you forgotten the one that you follow? H have you Lost track of him? Don't you know which way he went? He went down. He descended into greatness. He gave us a new definition of what greatness is. It's down there. That's where greatness is. 
Jesus said, whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. That's, that was his, his talking points. Everywhere he went, he was saying that. He washed feet. And Peter said, you can't wash my feet. He said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. This is the shape of my kingdom, and you get to wash next, but I wash first. He laid down an example. He served the lowly. He loved the outcast. He was poor. He said, you follow me. You're not, you're not going to have any place to lay your head at night. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was stripped. He was crucified. He was crucified. Use your imagination for just a moment. This will be a little bit morbid, but use your imagination for just a moment. If you dropped dead, where is the last place you would want them to find your body? And maybe, just for the sake of illustration, maybe you had a good reason to be in that shameful place. Maybe there was some innocent reason for you to be there. But what's the last place you'd want people to find your body if you dropped dead this week? If you asked that question to people in the first century, the most common answer would be, of all the places, on a cross. That's the last place I'd want to die. That's the most shameful place to die. And that's where the king of glory's body hung when he breathed his last. That's the story we're living in. That's the way he went. The one we're following. That's the way he went. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And Paul says, even death on a cross but then he goes on to say but God God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth under the earth every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the one who was humbled has been exalted to the highest place. He sits on his throne and he will sit on that throne forever. He is the king over all the kings. He is the Lord over all the lords. And that ending to this Christ hymn of the first century was music to their ears. I wish we knew the melody line that they would have sung this hymn too, so we could sing it this morning. But the ending to that Christ hymn was music to their ears. To this harassed, persecuted church like Philippi, they needed to know, Caesar's not calling the shots. Jesus is. He's on top of the world now. He's ruling and reigning. And whatever we suffer in this world is only temporary. Whatever we suffer in this world will be outweighed instantly when we see him, instantly outweighed when he comes to rescue his people. That's the story of the gospel. Oh, friend, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, trust in him today. Find refuge in the one place on earth where it is. In Christ is forgiveness of sins. In Christ is freedom and joy. In Christ is resurrection life, new life. Run, run to him in faith. But we know this. When we run to the Savior in faith, we're not promised an easy path. This Christ-centered hymn tells us which way Jesus went. 
This hymn isn't a history lesson. This hymn isn't a history lesson. It's an itinerary. This is the schedule for where you're headed in life if you're following Jesus. You're going down. You're going to the place of humility. Like, like the one we follow, our path is from suffering to glory. We don't just skip to glory. We follow him down and then to glory. Our path is the cross first, then the crown. We don't get the crown first. The cross comes first, and the crown comes later. Philippians 2 shows us the way he went. This is in your notes for believers. The way up is down. The way up is down. This is what the apostle Peter said. Listen to these words. They're on the screen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, we are following him. He was humbled. He was exalted. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Look, Jesus made humility look glorious. The Christian never looks more compelling attractive, the Christian never looks more beautiful than when clothed in humility. This is what Jesus wore. Church, are we together for the gospel? And I don't just mean nodding agreement at the facts of history that center around Jesus, no. I mean the gospel culture those things create. The atmosphere, the smoke at the front of the bus. I mean that thing that happens when we get around salvation. If this good news sinks in, all kinds of stuff's gonna be changing. All kinds of stuff's gonna be happening in the church and through the church in the city and in the world. What, what happens when the gospel gets in? What happens when we're up at the front of the bus and we're living in this environment of the grace of God? We wake up praying for other people, right? We'll be more encouraging. We look for ways to encourage other people. We leave the safety of what's familiar. We know it's not our path to find the safest place in the world. We leave the path of safety and what's familiar. We'll be more thankful when the gospel gets in deep. We're less fixated on ourselves when the gospel gets in deep. When the gospel gets in deep, we actually leave our own world behind and we enter somebody else's world. And right there in that world, we incarnate Christ's love right there in the mess of it. And we bring real ministry and we make real human contact. I have teenagers, so that means, at least for us, we listen to a lot of Christian rap music. And there's diverse, I mean, there's a lot of diversity in the car when we're driving around. So there's some rap songs that have a sort of bed of piano underneath, and there are other rap songs that have a bed of guitar underneath. So there's some diversity in the sound of the rap songs. One particular artist that, um, that I've heard, he's, he's known for releasing a lot of raw emotion and even anger, and he gets a lot of flack and pushback for it. But it starts to make more sense when you listen to more of his music and then you encounter the song that he wrote to his mom who died of a drug overdose. 
And he's writing the song almost in conversation with his deceased mother. And suddenly the rest of his songs and the angst in his songs start to make sense. Here's what he says in that song. It's like he's talking to his mom. Our last conversation, you and I sat in the living room talking about my music and I brought you something to listen to. You started crying, telling me this isn't you. A couple weeks later, guess you were singing a different tune. You took them pills for the last time, didn't you? They took you from us once. Guess they came back to finish you. Crying my eyes out in the studio is difficult. Music is the only place that I can go to speak to you. It took everything inside of me not to scream at your funeral. And he, and I've never heard a song like this before, he lets the studio engineer capture him in the studio, unedited, weeping, absolutely coming unglued and weeping through the chorus of the song as he says over and over these words, why would you leave us? Again, why would you leave us? How could you leave us here? And he's just sniffling and he's crying as he says these words. How could you do this to us? There is so much pain in this world. And I think this man's audience is growing because he's tapping into some of it and he's interpreting people's experience. And he meets them in broken places in their lives and he finishes their sentences and he, it's almost like he sits with them right there in the wreckage of everything that's fallen apart. Philippians 2 wants to generate that kind of ministry. That kind of enter other people's world. Steward your pain for the building up of others. I read this tweet on Friday from Dane Ortland. His dad is a friend of ours, Ray Ortland, who preached here last year. Dane says this, twice in the Gospels we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. What is his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. That's the outward moving heart of Christ. Right, Paul, Paul doesn't want the church humble and selfless so everybody's nice in here. You know, we all use our inside voices and everybody's pleasant to one another. No, God ultimately wants us, Brook Hills, selfless and unified and together for the gospel so we can dive all the way into this world, all the way into this city, all the way into one another's lives and sit there in the wreckage and talk about hope that's found in Christ alone. Yet what if we, so what if we wore this? Or what if we became truly humble, self-forgetting, truly unified? What if people who came into our lives weren't seen as interruptions, but the reason we're here? What if, what if all the broken things and broken people of this city heard a rumor that to know Jesus is to experience encouragement? If there's any encouragement in Christ, what if they heard? That's what you get when you meet Jesus. Surprise, he's got encouragement. 
He's got consolation and love. He'll wrap you in affection and mercy. That's the stuff you get when you get close to Jesus. Remember what we said on week one, how Paul begins this letter with a summary of everything he wants to say. Everywhere I go, this is my message. If you don't want this, don't bring me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What if we told Birmingham, that's what we're talking about at Brook Hills. And then they said, when? You know, when's that series or when's, when's that sermon kind of focused on grace and peace? And we said, Sunday. And they said, which Sunday? And we said, every Sunday. Every series is grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every series is some new turn on that. What, what, if, what if we sat in this cloud of encouragement, consolation, friendship with the Spirit, <laughs> affection and mercy, and then we carried it with us, almost as, as it were, on our clothes when we left? What might God do in us and through us for his glory.